Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us through the word that we've heard and equip us for every good work for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, World War II was one of the most fierce and one of the most saddest, tragic events in human history. But it was the 6th of June in 1944 was the day that ensured victory on the Western Front of World War II. Allied troops landed, and although Allied troops had to fight uh, until the Germans surrendered on the 5th of May in 1945, almost a year later, in that year or so, though the battle was real, it was tough, sadly many casualties took place, and it was a struggle for all those involved. In that year, victory was no longer in doubt. Now, while it's not a complete picture, I actually think this example from history paints something of a picture of the Christian life today. Uh, we live in a time of salvation history called the now but not yet. And in short, theologians call this that now but not yet, because right now, because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, Christians already have been blessed with every spiritual blessings. We have been adopted, redeemed, and are saved. But we do not yet fully experience the fullness of these blessings until Jesus' second coming. Now, but not yet fully. And so we live every day with that tension between the two comings of Christ, the first and the second. And until he returns, our life today remains a struggle because of the changes, the challenges, and the chances of this weary world. And because of this, it ties into our, mission, our vision. Because of this, we need the refuge, the security, and the hope that Christ offers us. And so this afternoon, as we close out our series in the book of Esther, as Tara mentioned, as we look at chapters 8 to 10, so we won't cover all that we have in the Bible here, but I want to give you four things from these final chapters that will help us in the now, but not yet, that will help us to long for Jesus' return from the book of Esther. The first point for us this evening is reversal. Point one, reversal. And if you've not been with us uh, for the previous sermons in the book of Esther, you can find the podcast on our website, as Tara mentions. But really, by way of brief recap, the story of Esther is set in a time of exile. God's people are in exile. Now, what is exile? Well, we start with the side of the Bible with the opposite of exile. At the side of the Bible, we see God's people with God in his place, under his rule, and enjoying his blessings. It's a picture of the kingdom of God, but it's not perfect. Because of sin, God's people were exiled from God, cast out, and faced the penalty of sin, death. And in the book of Esther, we arrive at a part of the Old Testament where God's people had no king. The kings of Israel had failed. God's people were not in the promised land. They had broken God's rules, so they had been kicked out, defeated by their enemies. And God's people were not enjoying the blessings. And God is silent in this book. God's people are exiled. And in the first eight chapters of the book of Esther, we're introduced to four main characters. Uh, the first was King Ash 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 
Uh, I've preached on it four times now. I still can't say the name right. And I'm still sticking with King Xerxes. That's his Greek name. So whenever you hear me say King Xerxes, King Ashurish, say it different every time. It's the same fellow. Second, we met Esther who through God's powerful and protective care has risen to be the top of the monarchy in the kingdom of Persia uh, because she is beautiful and she's a Jewish person. Uh, Third, Mordecai, who raised Esther, also Jewish, has been given a place of honor in the kingdom because he saved the king's life. How? Well, by being at the right place at the right time. And lastly, Haman. Now, Haman in this story is God's people's enemy, the evil Haman, who had an evil plan to kill, to destroy, and to annihilate all the Jews. But if you were with us last time, in chapter, uh, we saw last time, but in chapter 8, we heard it read, Haman is now dead, but his evil plan lives on, because it's already been signed by the king. Uh, Now, if you've ever purchased a home before, the contracts have been signed. You have to go through with the house purchase. And here, this edict, this evil plan has been signed and it has to be carried out. So we read and heard it read in Esther chapter 8, starting at verse 5, Esther, out of necessity, is begging, is pleading on behalf of her people to request the king to end Haman's evil plan. We read Esther chapter, five, verse, uh, Esther chapter 8, verse 5, it says, And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sights, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. This is what the story of Esther has been building upon, building towards God has placed his people, Esther and Mordecai, in a place of power so that they may care for his people. And in verse 10, in the same chapter, And he, Mordecai, wrote in the name of the king Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women were included, and to plunder their goods. Now, I just want you to briefly notice the differences between the two edicts. We had Haman's plan, which was effectively to slaughter the Jews in cold blood. And now we have Mordecai's plan, The Jews were allowed to defend themselves if they were attacked. And then jumping to uh, Esther chapter 9, verse 1, if you've got a Bible with you, please do keep it out in Esther chapter 9 and 10. That's where we're spending the rest of our time together. We see that the day arrives. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the providence of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The reverse occurred. The Jewish people are saved. Now this is, looking back at the story, quite clearly God's hidden hand in Esther, bringing about the reversal of events to care for his people. And I think the whole book of Esther is a powerful statement of God's protective care for his people in which a world in which he seems to be apparently absent from. But we who are familiar with the Bible really shouldn't be surprised that the reverse occurred because the God of the Bible is the God of the reversals. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, we see this in Joseph's life. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, we see this quite clearly at the cross of Christ. What man meant for evil, crucifying Jesus, God meant for good. The reverse occurred. God meant for good the cross for the salvation of the world. You see, I think this reversal in Esther gives us a vision of the climax of human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the greatest reversal. What looked like defeat the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews, hanging on the tree, is actually the ground of his victory. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament letter to the church in Colossae, uh, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, the words are on the screen behind me, he writes regarding the cross, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by cancelling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of the cross, because of Jesus' substitutionary death in our place for our sin and his triumphant resurrection, we have been forgiven of our trespasses We are exiles no more. And because of Jesus' resurrection, this shows us that he has the victory. He triumphs over the evil one. Triumphs over death because death could not hold him down. Jesus is alive. Now, I've mentioned the word exile a couple of times today, and I've been thinking a lot about exiles and thinking a lot about exiles in this now but not yet time that we live in. Remember, Esther was set in a story of exile. Today, in the now but not yet time that we live in, though we are not yet at home in this world, we are aliens, we are strangers, we are sojourners, travelers in this world, I hope you understand that we are not exiles in the same way that the people of Esther were. Uh, Chris Thompson, uh, a Christian theologian, uh, I've got a tweet of his up on the screen. This is the first time I'm quoting a tweet in the sermon. And he spent some time thinking about, well, what is exile today? And he helpfully explained to us, um, and I'm just going to quote him now, reading from the tweet, 
I'm uneasy about the way some Christian thinkers have used the language of exile to describe the experience of cultural marginalization or hostility. Tweet number two. Despite some recent translations, the New Testament describes us as sojourners and resident aliens, not exiles. And if those things doesn't make sense to you, the tweet three really brings it home. If Christians are not at home in this world, it is because we have not yet arrived at our true homeland, not because we have been cast out. There's a difference there. This isn't our home. We have a future home to go to, so we feel different to the world around us, but we are not cast out anymore because Jesus has done something for us. But the Bible tells us that we are already raised with Christ through faith in him, that God is dwelling with us by his spirit as a deposit of what is to come. That is good news. He is with us. God invites us to come to him, come to Jesus as we are. It's remarkable news. So while we are not yet home, we are already saved, secure. We already have the refuge, the hope, and the security that Christ offers us because of the reversal, because of the victory. There is a future reality to come where God himself, we will see him, he will be with us. A future reality where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where death shall be no more, neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, and the former things will be passed away. But as we wait for that day, in the now but not yet, we remember the reverse occurred, that God protected his people in the story of Esther. The Jews gained mastery over their enemies, and God has cared for us at the cross of Christ. And this enables us to be secure today, living for him in this tension of the now but not yet. Point one, reversal. Victory took place. And what comes after victory? Rest. Point two, rest. Uh, notice with me in Esther chapter 9, verse 16, that after the victory of the Jews, the people got relief, got rest from their enemies. It says in verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, this rest after victory is actually a pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. If you're familiar specifically with the book of Judges, we see the people sin. They call out to God to save them. God saves, sends a rescuer. And then after they're rescued, they experience a time of rest, rest from their enemies. But in the Old Testament, there's a downward spiral and this rest never seems to last because of human being sin, breaking God's law, living as if we get to make up the law, doing what is right in our own eyes, not following God as ruler, of which we have all done. Rest in the Old Testament never seems to last. And the rest in the Old, Test in the Old Testament, what the Bible is pointing us towards is to come. Uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, again, the words will be on the screen. It says, For if Joshua, who was a key figure in the Old Testament, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, as God did from his. There remains a rest to share with God in everlasting joy. So the question is, how do we enter that rest? Uh, well, I've heard it helpfully explained to me uh, through the process of sowing. Hands up who has sown in this room before? A couple of people. Uh, what does sowing require? A needle and a thread. The needle passes into the material and what follows the needle, it's the thread that's attached to it. Uh, I hope no one in this room has ever tried to sew just with a needle. It doesn't work. You can't pierce into the material. The thread needs to be led by a needle. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going here. Jesus is the one who passes through, who enters into God's rest. But we Christians who are united to him by faith in him, he takes us with him so that we can enter into his rest. Not based on our own performance, but based on Jesus. Because Jesus already risen from the grave and he takes us with him we can have rest we can have eternal life because of jesus now because of jesus there's that sure and certain hope of future rest but there is an amazing reality of a present offer of rest from jesus today uh, you see today we are searching we are restless we are searching for many things, many things to fulfill us. And when we get these things, when we acquire the thing that we have been longing for, when we have it in our hands, we look to the next thing because the things that we acquire don't pro provide us with the security, don't provide us with the satisfaction, and we are restless. You may be familiar with an amazing quote uh, from a church figure named Augustine. He said, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And friends, Jesus offers us this rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the invitation of Jesus. Uh, there's a, a book called Gentle and Lowly, written by a fellow called Dane Orton, and he applies this invitation of Jesus really, really well. And the quote's on the screen here. He writes, you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. This rest is a gift, not a transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively find yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, Jesus Christ's desire is that you find rest. And this beautifully ties into our vision of our church. We are pointing people to come find rest in Jesus, which isn't a transaction, but it is a gift, a grace from God. We already have the gift of refuge, the gift of hope, the gift of security that will help us in the now but not yet. Point one, reversal. Point two, rest. And point three, remembrance. Uh, now today, if you open up your, your calendar, 
you will see a number of days dedicated to remembering stuff. There's some serious days like Anzac Day and there's some silly days like May the 4th. Can anyone tell me what, we, what do we remember on May the 4th? Star Wars. There's many days to commemorate things, to remind us of things in history. And whether you choose to celebrate these days or not, they serve as a yearly reminder of something in history, whether it be good or bad. And in the Bible, whether we like it or not, there are a lot of remembering things. There are a lot of feasts established to help God's people remember. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to forgetfulness. God tells us to remember. In the Old Testament, there were all these feasts established, such as Passover, the Feast of the Weeks and Tabernacles, which are established and we can read of in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Esther, after the victory, after the reversal, we see an accounting or accounting of the events that took place. And in chapter 9, from verse 26, it says, Therefore they called all these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what is written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should, be, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Mordecai adds the, day, the feast of Purim. He decrees that each year there should be a thanksgiving of the uh, deliverance from the threat of extinction that we hear about in Esther. Remember, the reverse occurred. Uh, in 2023, some Jews still observe this feast. But as Christians, even more than how we should remember God's protective hand in the book of Esther, today, in the now but not yet, we remember the greater salvation moment that we have in the Lord Jesus. You see, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul exhorts believers to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. More than we remember the Feast of Purim, we remember Jesus Christ, the greater salvation that we have in him. The most significant day to remember is Easter. And it's so important that we just don't remember the things that happen on Easter at Easter time. We don't just remember it as we gather as the people of God each Sunday, though we do, but we remember each day. We remember Jesus risen from the dead each day. How do we remember? Well, I think there's two big things that we can do to remember Jesus today, to remember him risen from the dead today. Number one, we read the Bible. We make our pattern, our daily grace of reading the Bible and remembering the salvation that we have in Jesus. And I think the second way that we can remember Jesus today, sometimes the overlooked one, is to encourage the saints, to encourage one another and to be encouraged as a church community, as we encourage one another 
to remember Jesus. As we confess our sins, as we confess how we've shorn fought, we proclaim to brothers and sisters, remember Jesus, that he has risen from the dead. As we come to church, we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Point one, reversal. Point two, rest. Point three, remembrance. And our final point for this evening, point four, rule. We open up Esther chapter 10 to close out our time. Starting in verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlines, coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. See, King Xerxes has raised Mordecai to a place of rule. Now I want you to notice as a part of Mordecai's rule, in verse 3 of what we just read out, Mordecai's rule was to benefit God's people. And what a contrast this is to the start of the book of Esther, if you remember it. At the start of the book of Esther, God's people were sort of at risk and uh, they were at the mercy of any tyrants that came along. For example, Haman. But Mordecai now was well placed in this position of power to represent God's people to secure their best interests. And thanks to Mordecai, the Jewish people in the empire felt secure, even though they were under foreign domination. And this can't help point us forward to Jesus' rule today. Where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of God, where he is risen, ruling all things. As the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. So we take our sin to him, for he has done something about it. And he is also the Lord. So we submit to his rule turn away from sin away from self to jesus to our savior no longer living with ourself as our own ruler but living his way under his rule now if you've been a part of churches for a while you would have heard the words jesus is my lord and savior said quite often uh, we love the savior part and sometimes we leave off the lord parts but i think there's a mistake that we make when we say Lord. Sometimes we fall into the trap that Jesus' Lordship is restrictive, that it isn't for our good. That is a mistake. Jesus' Lordship in our life, like how Mordecai's rule, it's actually for our benefits. You see, there's a crisis around the world in many churches with the Bible's view on marriage, gender, and identity, and really what, is it, what does it mean for human flourishing? And some people say that Jesus' teaching are restrictive. It's against human flourishing. But that's a failure to see that Jesus' rule is both truth and good for mankind. 
under Jesus' rule, as we turn away from sin, as we turn to him, living under him, that is how human beings flourish. That is how we benefit from his rule. We benefit from his rule for eternal life, but his rule also helps us today. And so, we who trust in King Jesus, we who have him as our saviour, live with him as our Lord. Uh, to close this evening, as we close out the book of Esther, we have seen the reverse, the rest, the remembrance, and the rule. And today, though our lives are perhaps more marked by suffering than triumph, in the difficult times, as we live between this tension of the now but not yet, know that our hope is certain, our future is secure so that our mood can be one of confidence. Confidence as we look back at the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are secure in his victory, that we remember the rest that is on offer, that we can be found in him and let us submit to his rule. And as we look forward to the return of King Jesus, where he will make all things new. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word and the lessons from the book of Esther that were spent time in over the last couple of months. We are struck by your powerful and protective care of your people throughout the ages. And we thank you for your grace towards us, that you have not left us exiled, dead in our sin, but you have made us alive in King Jesus, that you have made a way for salvation to be known by trusting in him. So we thank you that in him we are exiles no more. We praise you that through Jesus Christ, our ascended Lord, who is seated at the right hand right now, advocating for us and ruling all things. And Lord, we ask that you help us to wait for his return. Help us in this life to remember his victory, to rest in him and to live under his rule. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.